1983, the first USFL title game in Denver, Colorado. Michigan Panthers, Philadelphia Stars, quarterback Bobby Hebert to Anthony Carter. A 48-yard touchdown play that made the difference as Michigan beat Philadelphia 24-22. Hebert, the MVP. And Michigan coach Jim Stanley got the happy ride. 1984 at Tampa. Match the Stars and the Arizona Wranglers. The Stars dominant, winning 23-3. Stars quarterback Chuck Fusina, first 10 passes completed. Named the MVP. And Kelvin Bryant pounded out 115 yards and led the celebration in the clubhouse. In 1985, Kelvin Bryant and the Stars are back for a third title try. In the semifinal, Bryant, two big plays. This 76-yard run plus a 70-yard pass reception as the Stars won their way over Birmingham and into the title game again. Quarterback Bobby Hebert and Anthony Carter plus 11 other former Michigan Panthers, now Oakland Invaders. They come to the finale with the best record of the season, a team capable of the spectacular big play. This is a matchup of an explosive offense against a dogged defense. As ABC Sports presents... The United States Football League Championship Game, 1985. The Oakland Invaders out of the West and the Baltimore Stars. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Yes, there he is, the uh, unmistakable voice of the recently departed Keith Jackson, the voice uh, for all three years or so of the United States Football League. Our topic today here on Good Seats Still Available, that curious little podcast that is devoted to, of course, what used to be in professional sports. My name is Tim Hanlon. I appreciate you giving us a listen. And uh, today we're back into the realm of football and we're finally getting our first uh, efforts around uh, a league that uh, many people uh, have been requesting. Uh, we have a great entree into it. And that, of course, is the United States Football League, a.k.a. the USFL. Uh, I think it's so popular because it's a relatively recent endeavor. Uh, it was in the uh, early 1980s and uh, was arguably uh, probably the last uh, professional, top-tier professional league to challenge uh, one of the major uh, four or five sports uh, here in this country. And uh, the USFL is uh, still fresh enough a memory for for most people of a certain age, uh, and yet still uh, far enough back that uh, it's a curiosity and uh, and a head scratcher. And, and I think probably only exacerbated by the uh, presence of our current United States president, Mr. Donald Trump, uh, regardless of what you think about his politics uh, today and the way the government is running or not running, depending on the day you're listening, the unmistakable mark uh, that uh, a young uh, brash, still brash, earlier brash, uh, Donald Trump had on the USFL is uh, quite well known and certainly highly uh, debated and hotly contested uh, in conversation. Uh, we're going to get to some of that 
that discussion, some of that history with our guest, Paul Reitz, who is the uh, author uh, of a book courtesy of our friends at uh, McFarland called The United States Football League 1982 to 1986. Don't be misled. The league did not last four to five years like the uh, title implies. It, it did in terms of its startup and its ending, uh, but it really uh, on the field was only around for three years. But what a three years it was. Uh, what a crazy story it became. Uh, the people, the intrigue, the play, uh, the players, uh, the battle between the NFL and the USFL, the rise of television, uh, and the importance of such uh, in, in the uh, beginnings of any league, in the case of the USFL, designed with television in mind, and absolutely uh, some amazing uh, and curious personalities, uh, Mr. Trump being one of them, but uh, a whole host of other folks who had uh, various reasons for getting involved in uh, a challenger uh, to the National Football League, albeit uh, not a direct challenger, at least in the beginning, in the spring seasons it was playing, uh, but ultimately uh, being commandeered by, according to many accounts, uh, Donald Trump and his desire to push the league uh, into a direct competitive position with the NFL. And of course, uh, challenging the NFL for its uh, supremacy of professional football in this country uh, via antitrust uh, claims. And uh, we all know how that played out. For those of you who don't know how that played out, you will enjoy this conversation as a primer uh, for our discussions to come, of course, uh, on the old USFL. And uh, today with Paul Reitz, we're going to talk about uh, kind of an entree, I guess, a little uh, a little poo-poo platter, a little, little entree into the United States Football League and what it was all about. Uh, coming up in a couple of seconds here on The Big Show. Uh, before we get there, I do want to remind you that, of course, we are sponsored once again by our friends at sportshistorycollectibles.com. And that is the place, of course, if you want to find memorabilia and uh, programs and media guides and... Uh, you know, all kinds of uh, uh, things from teams uh, uh, long gone, as well as current teams or iterations of teams that uh, were in various forms prior to their current incarnations. SportsHistoryCollectibles.com. And please, by all means, use the promo code GOODSEATS for your 15% discount on all of your purchases. Again, SportsHistoryCollectibles.com, promo code GOODSEATS for 15% off, again, for all those great things that you're going to find there. Uh, in the realms of basketball and baseball and football and soccer and tennis and and you name it, uh, all kinds of fun and amazing, interesting things uh, for you to discover uh, both visually as well as uh, in your pocketbook. It's sportshistorycollectibles.com, promo code GOODSEATS for your 15% discount. We are also sponsored today, of course, by Audible. Audibletrial.com slash GOODSEATS is the place to go for your free audiobook download and a free one-month uh, trial of the audiobook service that is Audible. You can cancel at any time. And like I said uh, many times before, there are 180,000 plus and counting titles to choose from. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free audiobook download and a free one month uh, trial of the Audible service. Again, you can cancel at any time. We love Audible. We love audiobooks. I believe you will too. Give them a try. Thank you so much. And uh, we appreciate your patronage of such. All right. With that, we move on to our conversation with Paul Reitz, the author of the United States Football League, 1982 to 1986, and our entry conversation into the wild, the wacky, the woolly world of the USFL. At what point do you sort of recognize that the USFL uh, is worthy of its own sort of tome, shall we say? 
Uh, what did you see out there that uh, either was there or not there? Uh, and then uh, w- what was your sort of journey into sort of creating a, a book and the tale and, and arguably the definitive tale thus far? There's very few writings thus far, uh, although I, I do hear some rumors of, uh, of folks uh, uh, putting some more pen to paper on, on, the, on the league. But um, how does a book in your mind come together and what's the process by which you des- decide to do so? Well, the the league had a book written about it uh, in approximately 1987 by a former uh, communications director. He was there for a time. His name was Jim Byrne, and he wrote a book called The One Dollar League. I have a, uh, uh, for, for all of our listeners, I am uh, staring at a, uh, a very old copy of that book. It is out of print. Uh, it is called The One Dollar League, The Rise and Fall of the USFL, written by Jim Byrne, and uh, it is a mini crusade of mine to get it republished in some way, shape, or form. It is. You know, the, the what what kind of motivated me, I guess, is that I didn't feel that it did the league justice, that it was a, a, a rushed work. I have since found out that Harry Usher, the league's second commissioner, also planned to do a history of the league. When Byrne found this out, he rushed his book, finished it up before Usher could and got his published, which which essentially cut Usher off. But I think if you... You know, you look at the book, there are very few sources quoted. Uh, it's almost all from Mr. Burns' perspective. And so I think that it's, it's limited um, because of that reason. And I felt that the league, because of its importance as the last challenger to a major league, to an established major league, that the USFL needed something better, that it needed something more complete, where those who had made it what it was could participate and could have their voices heard. And so I set out uh, to interview as many people as I could, um, to get interviews uh, from other sources. Um, uh, A few years ago, ESPN did a a 30 for 30 special on the USFL in which they talked to a lot of people. They could only use a portion of the interviews that they conducted, and they they allowed me access to the interviews, and that, that helped really round out the book as well. So, you know, I wanted this story my book to be told in the words of the people who actually lived it, the coaches, the players, the administrators, those who could give, you know, kind of the inside scoop on it and not just be from one perspective. And the book, uh, and we're going to promote this uh, early and often, of course, is called the United States Football League 1982 to 1986. Uh, it's published by our friends at McFarland and um, uh, came out last year. Interesting, it's also forwarded by a guy named Steve Earhart. You want to uh, uh, describe who Steve Earhart is and was uh, in relation to the USFL. Steve Earhart uh, is a guy who was on the USFL's radar before the USFL even began. When they were having just initial discussions, he was involved uh, as a lawyer for various coaches, various players. So he was very familiar with professional football and especially behind the scenes negotiating contracts and things of that nature. Very in uh, aware and kind of in the middle of some of the the 1982 NFL strike stuff. So he was a guy who was just on the ground and ready. And he was dealing with several coaches who would wind up in the USFL. Uh, His name was out there uh, very early and he became the the, the USFL's first or second employee. Uh, After Chet Simmons was hired as commissioner, he hired Steve and Steve was Essentially, he was called the executive director, but essentially like an assistant commissioner. So he did everything behind the scenes for the first uh, 
year before the league launched and then the first two seasons. After the second season, then he became a part owner of the Memphis Showboats, the GM as well, and moved out there. So he has this wide-ranging perspective on the league that not only lasts from day one, but as many people know, he collected the the check, the $3.70 check from the NFL after the trial concluded. So he was the last uh, remaining person from the executive committee charged with uh, wrapping up the league's business. So he, he was on for the whole ride and was uh, always somebody who was heavily involved behind the scenes. He couldn't have been more helpful. Was he your starting point, or did you have other starting points to kind of sort of frame uh, the, the the guts, I guess, of the of the book and and, and guide you going forward? I had uh, I had conducted a few interviews before that, had put together a rough outline of the book, had completed a couple of sample chapters, and called Steve uh, and just let him know what I was working on. And I, I remember the first call with him, of which we've had many since then. I asked him, you know, I, I described the book, and, and he said to me, all right, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this right. Let me see one of your sample chapters. So I sent it over, and I think that convinced him that I was really wanting to uh, catalog the history of the league that I didn't have any kind of other agenda or anything like that, that I wasn't doing it from a hush, you know, a, a rush burn perspective, just seeing an opportunity, but that I, I, I was really wanting to tell uh, the history of the league uh, because I had enjoyed it so much. And so he was an invaluable asset in putting this book together in putting me in contact with people that maybe I wouldn't have been able to reach otherwise and providing behind the scenes information in just, uh, just every facet. Um, even from a horse historical perspective, just so much has changed since then. It's hard to put yourself back in the 1980s when you had three major television networks and cable penetration was at less than 25% of U.S. households. So what did that look like? How did that affect negotiations? So he was really an invaluable asset. Well, all right, let's use it as a segue because uh, into sort of the, the journey and the history and stuff, and we'll sort of ask some other sort of uh, procedural questions along the way, but... Um, yeah, I guess maybe uh, take us back, and this is obviously a revisit uh, to your childhood, right? In the uh, the early '80s, right? So the the idea of this of this challenger league to the uh, the mighty uh, National Football League, right, was uh, pretty much began in the very early part of the 1980s, uh, when indeed you're describing a media landscape that was, you know, cable was becoming a thing. It was the the, the era of you know. Uh, Asking, calling your cable operator, if you had a cable subscription, to, uh, you know, I want my MTV, right, and other things. ESPN, right, right, exactly. ESPN in 1979, the, back when it actually stood for something, the Entertainment and Sports Programming Network. Uh, you know, college basketball and, um, you know, it was really very nascent times. Uh, based on your journey backward uh, into the early uh, rumblings of this league, uh, what is your assessment of, I guess, the narrative of, of effectively how did this essentially come about from your perspective? The league was the idea of a man named David Dixon. He was a New Orleans antique dealer. He was pretty well connected down there. Uh, just to say that he was an antique dealer does him a little injustice because you wonder 
how does a guy like that become involved in pro football? But he had been involved in staging NFL exhibition games in New Orleans before the Saints. He had been part of the deal that brokered the Saints and the New Orleans Superdome. So he was a guy who was known in football circles who could get NFL commissioner Pete Rozelle on the phone. So he was a, a well-connected guy, and he had had this idea far back, um, I think before the uh, American Football League merged in the NFL. But it never seemed to be the right time. Uh, Tex Ram of the Cowboys seemed to always have, you know, counter that, you know, it was our idea first, we might do something, you know, as kind of a, a, a feeder league. and It never could get traction. Now, when Cable burst upon the scene, uh, and started to really gain momentum. Uh, as you mentioned, you know, 70s, we had some cable, but really in the 80s, it was starting to pick up momentum. Early 80s, you had about 25% of cable penetration. By the close of the decade, I, I believe they were right up around 50%. So that's when cable was exploding. So Dixon saw this need for programming, not only a need for programming, but people who would pay for it. And he decided that the time was right to launch the USFL. It was actually supposed to launch a year earlier, but they put it off a year uh, in order to get uh, uh, their ownership firmed up. And uh, you know, it was really cable and the, the money that you can get from television because you cannot do pro football without a television contract. You can't pay for all your expenses just out of ticket revenue. There is simply no way. And especially when you're looking at a major league, when you have such resources committed to player salaries. So he, it was really television that was the driver. And that's, that's no shame. Television's always been the driver. Television's the reason that the American Football League survived when they got its, their contract with NBC. It's the reason they merged. So uh, there were some attempts, especially at the time, to dismiss the USFL as a television league, which were just... Uh, I think they ignored the reality of professional sports at the time and that the NFL was a television league at that point. It was earning its revenue from television, and, and it's even more so now. Well, There's no shame in that. It's just the reality. Yeah, it's absolutely more so now. That. As a matter of fact, uh, you could make the argument that uh, NFL football today is actually propping up the broadcast television industry. I mean, t- t- it's, the, the tail wagging the dog, right? Right, right. Yeah, I mean, uh, the the economics of it. And we'll see, you know, with the NFL ratings slide where, where this all ends up. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, it, it, you, you can't do it without television. And so those who were trying to criticize the USFL at the time as being a television league, uh, it was a ridiculous, nonsensical charge, and it still is. Well, it's interesting. So uh, it, the, the the role of, of David Dixon, um, you know, he, he was uh, part of the New Orleans Saints coming to, to New Orleans. Uh, he, he had this idea rattling around in his head for some time that, I think interestingly, that football could be a spring and summer sport, either in addition or as a continuation to what the NFL and college football did. So that seemed to be a... An interesting distinction. If my research is correct, uh, I, I'm just wondering why it took him until 1980. I mean, obviously, he had gone through and seen the World Football League come and go in, in, in two sort of very, you know, dysfunctional uh, components. Obviously, the AFL was relatively successful uh, in the 60s and what it's what it led to in the early 70s with the merger to the to the NFL. But I'm, I'm just wondering. So in 1980, apparently, he 
uh, commissioned a, a research firm, I, I, ironically very well known in the television industry, called Frank Maggot Associates, uh, right, to right. Uh, you know, perhaps w- with a bit of a script, uh, determine that uh, there was an appetite and or a market for spring and summer football. I'm just wondering why 1980, you know, why it took so long at that point, especially given the WFL's spectacular two-part flameout in the mid-70s. I'm just wondering what was different five years hence from there that that made him think that now was the time. I, uh, You know, and I think you touched on it. I think that part of it is that by 1980, the WFL body was cold on the ground. While that body was warm, while it was still a spectacular failure that everybody knew about, you were going to have a hard time reaching investors. Uh, the other part of that is that Cable had not yet grown to the point where it could provide revenue. They were they were tiny, you know. As you, uh, ESPN launched uh, around 1979, so you didn't have yet the the cable penetration. They weren't yet commanding the ad dollars where they could outlay that money then on professional sports. By the early 80s, he saw that trend and he saw that they were ready. And so it was really, if you were going to do it, that was the time. The WFL body was cold in the ground, and the cable television was kind of reaching a little bit of a critical mass. So in other words, television was almost thought upon as being the foundational element, even before the structure and the the stadia and the, you know, the talent pools and all the sort of particulars of the sport of football itself it was almost that what he and his uh, his colleagues were thinking that look let's get this foundational element uh, and our belief in how television is growing in importance cemented almost first and foremost right yeah and it and it absolutely has to be you have to have ownership you have to have revenue and without television your pro football league is dead that has been the case for that has been the case for more than 50 years now and, you know, I, Dixon recognized this opportunity from an additional television resource that hadn't been there before. It had only been the three networks, and the NFL was on all of them. He knew that he would probably run into some resistance, but he correctly thought that by playing at a different time of the year that he could get himself on one of those networks. It was not going to pay what an NFL contract paid, so he had to have some supplement to that. And there was no other alternative until cable began exploding in popularity. So uh, there is a document, I'm guessing, uh, it was called the Dixon Plan. Um, number one, I wonder if you happen to know maybe where that document, uh, if it indeed it still exists, might reside. Uh, that seems to me almost like a Magna Carta for this league, right? <laughs> uh, if anybody had it, uh, besides Dixon himself, who has now passed away, uh, it was John Ralston. Uh, who was, who came on and helped Dixon recruit ownership and recruit coaches and uh, was Dixon's right-hand man during the formative stages of the league. And, uh, uh, you know, unfortunately, um, you know, we're not able to ask him either. So, yeah, I, it, it's probably out there somewhere in somebody's files. Well, yeah, and that's also sort of another question I was going to ask earlier is uh, sort of, uh, I wonder where, yeah, where does most of the sort of, uh, uh, I guess, most important sort of components and pieces of the USFL's history uh, reside, right? Because, uh, you know, until 
the NFL decides to recognize other components in and around their world over the 75 or 90 years or whatever it is, uh, depending on when you figure out the, the league actually truly started and, 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 and feedered into it. Um, where, where does this stuff live? Where, where can this be celebrated, right? Um, you know, you, yeah. you wonder where these components – I remember – you know, a couple of years ago, visiting my in-laws down in Jupiter, Florida, where um, uh, Burt Reynolds uh, mostly lives full time now. And for a period of time, he had a, a museum, uh, I guess, devoted to himself, the Burt Reynolds and Friends Museum. And um, <sighs> my uh, my father-in-law was just uh, 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 incredulous that uh, how transfixed I was with a couple of pieces of that uh, little uh, museum down there, which were uh, you know, an original uh, team signed uh, uh, ball from the Tampa Bay Bandits and a whole bunch of other sort of, you know, pictures of him and John Bassett on the uh, on the on the field and all that kind of stuff. Uh, there's so many great sort of stories and, and pieces out there. I just wonder if there's a um, I don't know if it's a, a full fledged uh, Hall of Fame, but uh, you wonder where these things could be. I mean, this is a very rich historical part of pro football in this country. It is. It is. You know, it's uh you have, of course, a sitting president who was a an owner in the league. You have Hall of Fame players who are in the league. You have players who were all pros and Pro Bowl level players throughout the 80s and 90s who played in the league. So it's not just this little little footnote that can be easily dismissed. And you know, as far as the um, kind of the the historical documents of the league, my guess is that. Um, Mr. Earhart probably has a lot of them. He has the, the final check from the NFL. Uh, you know, he was involved with the league, so I think he was probably entrusted with uh, with keeping those documents. Uh, a good number of press releases and um, uh, meeting notes and memos and things of that have leaked out over the years from various team offices. So some of this exists in collector hands as well. Well, all right. So, so let's get into you know. So the, the league itself uh, announces its uh, its arrival at the uh, famous Twenty One Club in New York, which you know at some point I, I want to do a live or a, a recorded podcast from actually that location because so many interesting leagues and announcements. I mean, the old NASL when Pele uh, was announced as, uh, as uh, coming to the New York Cosmos. I mean, there, there, there's a lot of uh, the the annals of sports history, pro sports history in particular, uh, do wend their way through the. Uh, through the tables uh, and the hallways of the 21 Club. But on May, May 11th, 1982, uh, the announcement to play and begin in 1983 with Chet Simmons, a the ESPN president at the time, named as the league's first commissioner. I guess in the lead up to that sort of that presentation, right, how does a, how do you think uh, Dixon et al. get, um, you know, two television networks, uh, I, I'm not sure they were conjoined at the time yet, um, no, no. To actually pay money for something that hasn't even launched yet, given things like the WFL and a whole bunch of leagues in in the 1970s, uh, you know, not faring all that well. I mean, that's that's the ultimate sales job, right? To get somebody in the television world to spend and pay and, and contractually agree to uh, something that didn't even exist yet. It was also a gamble. So when they held that press conference uh, on May 11th, 1982. They did not announce the, the television contracts or their commissioner. They announced the formation of a league. They sat at, at a table with ownership there. Some of that ownership, including Tad Toby, who would end up owning the Oakland team, was not committed. But they took a seat at the table to show that we have a full slate of ownership here. We're ready to go. That was enough. 
they had had discussions with both ABC and ESPN, but ABC was adamant that there will be no contract until there's an announcement, after there's an announcement. Uh, they had met some of the ownership. They knew that these guys were well-heeled. It was not a WFL setup where you really had uh, a bunch of people who had no business owning professional football teams. Uh, they had no capitalization. They, they There was just simply almost no way for them to avoid financial collapse from the start. The USFL was different. You guys, you had guys such as Al Taubman, who was one of the richest guys in the in America. Not only could he withstand the losses, but he wasn't going to be associated with anything such as the WFL. That, these are guys of substance who were able to get the attention of Rune Arledge, who was then the president of ABC Sports, and, and his second-in-command, Jim Spence. They took these guys seriously because they were serious guys. Uh, in the pre-internet age, before you could just look up a guy's bio by typing it into a computer, they didn't need to to type in anything. You open up a copy of a business magazine, and these guys were there. So this was serious ownership, and that's what really made the television networks uh, equally serious about the venture. They knew that it was not going to be a WFL situation. They felt also that the the Dixon plan, by and large, gave the, the league a chance to succeed. And ABC had its own plan for the league, uh, and ESPN needed programming. They they were trying to kind of work their way out of the tractor pull, late-night Australian rules football league reputation and attract some, some more major league sports. And, and the USFL was kind of their uh, start in pro football. Can you give, it, give our audience a sense of, of some of these um, original owners in this original pre-first you know uh, pre -first season launch, uh, what some of these folks' background were and maybe how they came together based on your research? Sure. You, you know, the kind of the tie that binds so many of these together, uh, guys together, is real estate. These were uh, just really strong real estate guys. A, a guy like Al Taubman was, he's one of the guys who really started the shopping mall business. And when you think about that, it just kind of blows your mind because shopping malls are not small, but he was dealing in them as a business. So he was a $400 million net worth kind of guy, super rich. Uh, Miles Tannenbaum in Philadelphia, all, all, also a real estate guy. Uh, he did the King of Prussia mall out there. Second year, uh, Eddie DeBartolo Sr., also a mall guy. He came into the picture. So he had uh, principally so many of these real estate guys who were in there. You also had a famous cardiovascular surgeon from Arizona, Dr. Ted Dietrich. He pioneered uh, several of the devices used in heart surgery. Uh, so these were, these were guys who were super successful in various fields. Uh, Bill Daniels, Alan Harmon, uh, he had a uh, cable television magnate in there. Uh, these were not fly-by-the-night operators, and, and that's when you have a meeting with television executives and you start shaking hands. They knew who these guys were. They knew who Billy Daniels was. They knew who Alan Harmon was to an extent. They, they, they knew who Al Taubman was. These guys got their attention. They, they considered them a serious bunch who were not fools. And so when you, when you start off with that kind of a base – 
they were willing to listen. The television networks were willing to listen. And then when they examined the Dixon plan, they felt, yeah, this thing, this thing does have a shot. Oh, there's another element there, though, too. And this is certainly one of the themes that I've, I've seen and heard in the last number of months with this sort of silly little podcast uh, uh, and, and, and learning about lots of different things along the way is that, the, the, to me, one of the common threads of, of some of this stuff is, let's be frank, ego, right? And, and almost sort of big boy ego, right, where... You know, football is, you know, perhaps a childhood memory of their own. And, you know, the chance to have, uh, you know, a very expensive plaything, uh, perhaps, of course, to, to ensure making money and all that stuff, right, from a business perspective. But it's also, let's be honest, the, the, the fortunes that these uh, all gentlemen, right, sort of uh, created or inherited or, or, or augmented uh, in their professional careers, right, I, I'm not sure that uh, they would have necessarily looked upon a, uh, a a startup uh, professional football league as uh, a way to uh, embellish that wealth, right? I mean, there's there, there's some practicality that gets kind of thrown out the window when you talk about sort of the, I don't know, the uh, the the the, the dreamlike fantasy, I guess, of owning a professional football team, right? And and there is a circumstance in which you look at uh, pro- uh, an alternative professional football league and you see profit potential. Uh, and a large profit potential, and that would be a merger situation. Uh, so right, you know, right from the start, that that is probably the uh, fastest way to any profitability. But short of that, you're absolutely right. On a day-to-day basis, on a year-to-year basis, you're probably going to lose a little money. But you become a big wheel in in your hometown. You you really elevate your status as a businessman by owning a professional sports team. That's always been the theory, and so you're absolutely right. Ego is, is part of the driver for sports ownership. Without ego, we'd probably be looking at a much smaller sports landscape. Yeah, that's interesting. And and, and it's also too interesting, too, to sort of see how ego and uh, practical business uh, practices don't always converge uh, neatly, uh, especially when uh, things sort of get out of hand or competition gets the better of people or, or other things, um, as we'll, we'll see in a few minutes, but let, let's, so the league's announced, you've got, you've got a, a major league commissioner as somebody with extensive television background, you've got money in the coffers ahead of time from television. Um, maybe you can kind of spin a few yarns on sort of the early crazy days of actually getting the thing up and running. Sure. So the, you know, it becomes a mad scramble to, to sign players. You're looking at the draft. Uh, you're looking at signability. Um, the you know the people with Michigan would talk about a signability factor uh, they put on guys. Can we you know is it worth drafting a guy number one even if he's the best guy in the country if we can't sign him? So you know they're looking at all these things uh, for the draft because the USFL had not only a common draft like the NFL does but also a territorial draft where its teams would be able to grab players from local schools and essentially reserve their rights. So, uh, for instance, um, you had guys from Florida and Florida State uh, who would be assigned to the Tampa Bay Bandits to give them immediate local appeal, local draw, and Tampa would have first shot at signing these guys. Uh, Second of all, you're looking at NFL free agents. Uh, So anybody whose contract is coming up automatically has some negotiation power uh, you're, if you're signing them, you're signing them at a premium of what they just played for. 
And so you're this this mad scramble of of signing players, and the the guy who was out front leading that scramble was Hall of Fame coach George Allen, who was set up with the Chicago Blitz franchise. They were signing literally a couple hundred guys. They would go to prisons if they thought a guy had potential. They and they would sign a guy regardless of who held his rights in the USFL. They would just start signing and. Then work out the details later, either with some trade or with an apology or something. They just wanted to sign guys and get them into the league. And so this was happening right from the get-go. It was a very competitive situation. As you mentioned, Ego was driving ownership. And so Ego begins to drive signings. You do not want to be a laughing stock now that you've put your money into this venture. So very quickly there begins to build this pressure to build a team and to spend money doing it. And so you had people running out all over the place and really kind of the USFL's hallmark moment early on was its draft and the number of people it was able to sign from there and how it really decimated that year's NFL draft before they could even hold it. The USFL draft uh, was much earlier than, than the NFL and they were able to sign guys and just decimate that NFL draft. And then, of course, after the draft, they landed the biggest player in all of America, which was Heisman Trophy winner Herschel Walker. Well, so uh, back up for a second. So I think it's really important to to recognize that in the midst of the creation of this uh, and the formation of this, and I got a couple of specific questions of that in a second, um, you also had uh, perhaps manna from heaven uh, in the NFL, in its labor strife, and what became, um, and is now uh, an ESPN uh, 30 for 30 podcast, which I just listened to, uh, strike, a strike of players, right, with replacement players uh, during the fall of 1982's NFL season, right? So in many respects, there it almost is the NFL, in many respects, kind of shooting itself in the foot and opening the door to uh, questioning the product of the NFL and uh, and fans, you know, perhaps uh, more open to the idea of, an, of a viable alternative in some way, shape, or form. Right, and uh, with the 1982 NFL strike, we didn't see, you know, replacement players hit the field. Um, that would have been, you know, five years later when we saw the, the replacement players. Right. Correct, thank you, sorry. Actually play for three years, but the 1982 strike was no less bitter. I mean, it was... Uh, you know, a tough one. Uh, it, it wiped out um, almost half of the season. It was only a nine-game season and kind of made the playoffs a jumble, but it really uh, soured a lot of players. Now, players, as soured as they were, they were still going to act in their financial best interest. But it opened the door. I mean, the USFL certainly had a lot of fruitful discussions with players, with player agents uh, during and immediately after uh, that strike in that season. Uh, there was a certain amount of momentum, and it soured the public a little bit. They had had, uh, you know, nearly half the season wiped out, and, you know, the NFL had a little bit of a, a tarnish on the shield at, the point, at that point. So 
that turned out to also be, you know, a, a make it a, a good time to launch another league, make 1983 a, a great time to launch another league. Was there, am I giving enough, too much credit to the the, uh, the founders and the, the principals behind the USFL for anticipating that, or was that just a lucky uh, connection of history? You know, I think that you had a, a, a situation where you had uh, collective bargaining um happenings going on and you know as i mentioned that the usl did delay a year uh and so i think part of that was all the background that was going on there uh so you know certainly that strike did not come out of the the clear blue it was something that people knew was going to happen it was certainly something that people behind the scenes realized that that sides were really drawing lines in the sand and so that that was probably part of of the impetus there at least for uh, a bit of a delay. We uh, in our episode number eleven with um, uh, Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars uh, longtime publicist Bob Moore, um, we uh, we talked quite a bit about uh, the territorial draft and and uh, then General Manager Carl Peterson's mastery of that. Um, I, it does seem to me that that was a a, a very smart uh, both player as well as marketing innovation on the USFL's part uh, to recognize that. Um, local or regionally known talent uh, to the extent that they can be uh, convinced to play in their uh, their regional USFL uh, franchise uh, is a double a double word score win, right? Where you get the best of promotional capability as well as hopefully some quality players uh, who are already known properties to potential uh, potential fans and viewers. And uh, if you're a guy like a, a wide receiver coming out of uh, Alabama and you're being told you're probably a late-round NFL draft pick if you're lucky, you're going to have a hard time sticking through training camp, and the Birmingham USFL team grabs you, it becomes a very tempting proposition not to wait for the NFL draft and to sign right away and to continue to build your resume uh, at the very least. And, and to be able to, to be paid well as a professional in your home area. And that, that's, uh, that was really part of the genius of that territorial draft because that receiver from Alabama, if he goes off to play in Los Angeles, nobody cares. Nobody in the local market is going to care. If he plays in Birmingham, people are going to care, and they're going to recognize that name. So it really maximizes the value of that player. And, you know, the, the territorial draft was an excellent way of making sure that local players were able to maximize their impact on the league and on their drawing power. Well, speaking of territories, uh, as we're sort of getting this first uh, year uh, underway in our little journey together on a conversation, it's my understanding that there was also uh, a very uh, concerted effort to uh, have a Canadian uh, contingent of teams, a division, or at least a few teams uh, in this mix uh, in the early days. But that kind of, it seemed to kind of fall apart for a bunch of different reasons. Uh, and it looks like uh, John Bassett, who ultimately became the owner of uh, the Tampa Bay uh, Bandits franchise with his uh, pal, Burt Reynolds, uh, and, and a Canadian business uh, uh, mogul himself, uh, Bassett, um, was unable to really sort of get that idea going. Um, I'm wondering you know, uh, how serious or uh, close that might have been having Canadian teams at the outset of the quote-unquote USFL. 
You know, I, I think that from the moment that the the venture really got serious, that it was uh, essentially an all American league. Uh, Bassett himself had owned a team in the World Football League, the Memphis Southmen. And he ended up owning a team in Memphis because the Canadian government made all kinds of noise when he attempted to put a team in Toronto. Uh, he was going to have a team called the Toronto Northmen. And the Canadian government essentially blocked him, let him know that it wasn't welcome, that they didn't want the competition with the Canadian Football League. And so if any of that was looked at for the USFL, I think that it was shot down very, very quickly. Um, Bassett, as you mentioned, has, has ties to Canada, but because of that Memphis experience, also had a history of, of operating a team in the U.S. Um, and he had done so with other, with other teams as well, other minor league teams. So, it, you know, if there was anything like that really tossed about with the USFL, I think that it was either far in the future or it was in the very early planning stages because this league was really a, a U.S. league from the moment that the plans really began to finalize. All right, so we see the teams finally congealing. It seems like there was an attempt to get into San, San Diego, but that uh, became Los Angeles. So maybe uh, maybe a little bit of a, a setup of some of the, the teams that began this process. Uh, we had teams in Washington, Tampa Bay, Philadelphia, Oakland, New Jersey, not uh, slash New York, really, but New Jersey, Michigan, uh, Los Angeles, the Denver Gold, Chicago Blitz, Boston, which is an interesting story and continues to be an interesting story for any pro sports team trying to uh, start something in Boston, given, shall we say, relative lack of uh, quality stadium opportunities. Uh, Arizona, and interestingly, uh, and this is uh, worthy of exploration in, in another episode, Birmingham, right? Sort of the, uh, uh, what, what certainly became, becomes over time, as, as we see over and over again, uh, when it comes to any idea about pro football uh, and a new league, uh, there's, always, uh, there's always Birmingham as the, uh, I want to call them the doormat, but certainly the forgotten professional uh, city, I guess, that, uh, you know, uh, very much would love to step up to that next level. And, and here comes the USFL looking to fill that void. Right. I, you know, and I think it boils down to they have a, a stadium there. Uh, they're a, a southern outpost. And so it, it does fill a gap. And as long as you can find good committed ownership, then it's a, a very tempting market. And they, they do have a history of some support. So it's not a, a market where you looked at, at any kind of disaster. Even the, the World Football League, the 1974 team, the Americans won the WFL championship and were well supported and, uh, you know, played before a good crowd in that championship game and, and then folded. Uh, they, they, they had sheriff's officers confiscating their jerseys right after that game. Uh, there was no money left, and they immediately set up another Birmingham franchise for the 1975 season, the Vulcans, uh, who drew well for the WFL's 1975 season. Um, so you, it, it becomes a tempting market, that's for sure. And the USFL from the start wanted a mix of top markets. You needed, you needed the big markets. You needed the New York, Los Angeles, Chicago, Philadelphia, Boston for TV reasons, because otherwise uh, TV networks aren't interested. But they also wanted to bring in some markets that did not have professional football. And that's where markets such as Birmingham come in, where Phoenix at the time comes in. Uh, Oakland, uh, recently vacated by the, the Raiders. So they wanted a mix of those other markets as well. 
So the, um, the, the signing of Herschel Walker uh, with the New Jersey Generals, probably uh, fair to say the, uh, the probably the, 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 the most Comet-like uh, event in the, in the, the league's sort of uh, fledgling history. Um, you know, it's interesting because uh, no doubt there was money in the Dixon plan set aside for signing, I guess, what they called star marquee players, right? Not not too dissimilar to, say, what Major League Soccer does with uh, their their designated player uh, thing that, that doesn't necessarily count against the cap and and obviously uh, is for the betterment of the league, right? And, and obviously there's no, probably at that time, no greater uh, signing that you could find at that, uh, at that, uh, that period of time in 1983 than Herschel Walker. Um, but it's interesting because not only did he sign a contract, but it looked like he signed a contract with the league, to some extent, and almost had his own sort of decision process as to where he wanted to play. Uh, I, d- I don't think many USFL players had that luxury uh, to kind of just decide where he might want to play. And uh, just looking at the league salary plan that you touched on, the, the original idea was to have a million and a half dollar salary cap per team. And you would be signing probably some mid-round draft picks. That idea kind of quickly evolved to a million and a half salary dollar salary cap per team plus a couple of wild card exemptions per team. And that's exactly what you were talking about. The the star players that you could bring on to boost the marquee value of the team. Uh, Now what happened with Herschel, Herschel's a junior. NFL would not touch them. They would not touch anybody whose senior class hadn't graduated. So he was uh, hands off with the NFL. uh, You know, it's a, People have talked about that that rule, and uh, and even now today, that's that's been softened considerably, where you have underclassmen coming out all the time. But that wasn't an option at the time. So Herschel had actually looked into playing in the Canadian Football League. Uh, he was the most dominant player in America. Had suffered a couple of uh, niggling injuries that made him a little bit concerned about his earning potential after college, and and he wanted to turn pro. Uh, and he did. The USFL presented that opportunity. He would not have been able to do that without jumping to Canada uh, if the USFL hadn't come around. So the USFL gave him that opportunity. He was slated for New Jersey from day one. Uh, the, the New Jersey owner did not want to sign underclassmen, uh, didn't agree with it. It was an Oklahoma oil man named J. Walter Duncan, kind of old school. And so he was not... Uh, he, he originally did not want to sign any underclassmen. When this was presented to him, when he was told that Herschel's coming out one way or the other, uh, Herschel already has essentially a quasi-agent already running around trying to work some deals. Uh, whether the Dallas Cowboys ever admitted or not, they were working with them, with uh, the Cowboys. Uh, there was just no way Roselle was ever going to approve it. But Herschel was going to go to New Jersey. He was going to be the New York area superstar. And that's exactly what happened. You have this guy who's far and away college football's best, most well-known player had just lifted a, a car off somewhere, helped somebody out of a burning car. Uh, he, he was, a, he was a superstar already. And the USFL had this opportunity to sign him and that's exactly what they did. And it, it really was this huge deal. It, it really undermined the NFL's case against underclassmen. Um, it, uh, you know, it created all kinds of questions. Um, people drew, drew lines, but it, it got the attention of every news network 
if anybody ever doubted that the USFL was serious, the damage that it did to that year's NFL draft and the signing of Herschel Walker showed that it was serious. It was not going to be a minor league. Do you think Duncan's uh, hesitancy in the beginning of, of signing an underclassman uh, was informed or, um, you know, uh, around his, I don't know, it's kind of hard to sort of say this, but uh, his uh, desire maybe not to uh, irritate the NFL too much, right? Given what we alluded to before is maybe certain owners thinking about the uh, the long term and what could ultimately be maybe a merger or some kind of relationship uh, financially with the NFL down the road? Or is that giving him too much credit? I think that, you know, I, I, uh, again, a very smart guy. I think that he did realize to an extent that they were poking the bear. Uh, but I don't think that that was the main driver. I think that really that was the mindset of the people who were signing players at the time. Okay, whose senior class is graduating? Those are the eligible players. Because that's the way it had been. And, you know, I also think you have an Oklahoma oil man uh, who was probably – I'm guessing just a little bit familiar with the University of Oklahoma and not wanting to upset anything there, uh, wondering if they were opening up the floodgates. Uh, it wasn't just a, an isolated incident, but are you really opening up the floodgates for everybody? Everybody knew that, that, that rule against signing underclassmen is illegal. But who's going to litigate and spend two or three years litigating it? And that's the problem that they ran into for the players, is that, okay, we know this is... This is bull, but we can't do anything about it. But, well, somebody did something about it by finding an alternative league that would sign him, and that was Herschel Walker. All right, just when it was getting interesting, let's uh, let's bring this uh, to a grinding halt, shall we? Ah, just kidding. Uh, we got to pay the bills around here, and uh, our friends at Audible have been very helpful in attempting to allow us to pay some of those bills, and uh, we want to call them out now uh, and remind you that uh, a free audiobook download is yours for the taking, and also a free one-month uh, subscription to the service uh, of Audible at audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Again, audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free one-month trial of the Audible service and interestingly, most interestingly, a free audiobook download for you to enjoy. 180,000 titles and growing uh, every day to choose from, and there's uh, absolutely no excuse to not find at least one title amongst that uh, cavernous uh, selection uh, available to you that uh, you won't find to be enjoyable and uh, and good for the soul, including uh, a couple of books that might be interesting to our audience. And yes, some new ones, frankly, uh, that I'm finally listening to. One that I'm listening to right now uh, is by Carson Cunningham. It's narrated by Paul Bamer, and it's called Underbelly Hoops, Adventures in the CBA, a.k.a. the Crazy Basketball Association, which is really, of course, about uh, the Continental Basketball Association, which for many years uh, was sort of this ragtag minor league uh, of the NBA. And that's uh, it's a book I'm about two chapters into right now, and uh, hopefully maybe a guest will get uh, for a future episode. Also, uh, in my queue, next up, uh, is another guest that I'd like to get. Uh, and her book that she wrote is also uh, narrated by her. Her name is Jeannie Buss. And of course, Jeannie is the daughter of Jerry Buss, of course, the uh, wildly successful founder of the Los Angeles Lakers and the LA Forum. And Jeannie is, uh, is clearly today the brains behind uh, the Los Angeles Lakers today. Uh, she and her brothers were uh, active, of course, in things like, along with her father, uh, World Team Tennis, 
the major indoor soccer league with the LA Lasers, all kinds of stuff. So uh, her book is next on my list. That's called Laker Girl. And that too is available on Audible. And again, it's one of the uh, the many thousands of titles that you can choose from uh, when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And again, you too can get your free audiobook download to give it a try, perhaps one of those two, or perhaps one of the other 180,000 titles uh, available to you as well. Uh, give it a try, audibletrial.com slash goodseats. Thanks for listening and back to our conversation. So March 6th, 1983, the season starts and um, almost from the get-go, uh, a pretty much uh, unabashed success, both at the gate over across the league. I mean, certainly some interesting hiccups along the way and television ratings. I mean, maybe you can define a little bit about how 1983 kind of hit the marketplace. Do you think it, it met expectations, exceeded them? And I guess more importantly, or, or uh, ultimately, what did the NFL think? And did the USFL folks care? I think that on the outside, the, the USFL's 1983 season was a runaway success. They met their attendance projections. They, they projected about 25,000 in stadium attendance and, and hit that. Uh, they exceeded television uh, projections, which was really the important piece. Uh, ABC, ESPN, this is, this is new. This is football in the spring. They had some projections. And the USFL bettered them. Uh, Jim Spence, uh, ABC's uh, number two in command in their sports department, said that the league made them $12 million in 83 and $14 million uh, in 84. So this was something that they were very well pleased with. Uh, it was, you know, a runaway success from the outside. Now, on the inside, uh, we had mentioned this, this salary cap idea that David Dixon started off with. And then that it had been supplemented with marquee players. Well, those had never really been budgeted for. That's not a zero-sum marketing uh, game. These players cost something. And so in reality, that, that million-and-a-half-dollar player budget was, was blown from day one because of the marquee players. So therefore, teams were losing more than they had projected. And this had you know, a, a pretty drastic effect on some of the ownership. The, the Boston franchise, which was playing in an undersized stadium called Nickerson Field, had to leave town. There was just no way they were ever going to make it there. They could not come to an agreement with a decent-sized facility. They had to get out of town. Uh, Chicago Blitz's owner, who was a, the heart surgeon from Arizona, he had lost tons of money. He wanted to get back to Phoenix. So he was done with the Chicago team, and he would take over ownership of the Phoenix team. Uh, oh, West, uh, the Los Angeles owners wanted to get out. Uh, the Denver owner, who had been very successful, who had actually made money uh, even after startup cost that for first year, he wanted to get out. The Arizona owner, he was ready to get out. Uh, so you had you know, some of these guys who, after a season of losing two, four, five million dollars, were ready to be done with it. But on the outside, Things looked really good, and in fact, it, that helped some of those owners who were looking to get out because you had people ready to come in and purchase these teams for the most part, uh, which was a good thing. So the USFL, after year one, despite you know the kind of the storm clouds behind the scenes a little bit, they were actually in pretty decent shape, at least as far as being able to, to carry into year two. There was no 
no real threat of them uh, folding. The other thing that the USFL did was they expanded. And those expansion monies were used to kind of offset some of that initial loss. So that firmed up some of the ownership groups, took the sting out uh, from the, you know, the, the financial losses of the first season and, you know, kept, kept enough guys going forward. And, and uh, they, they easily were able to sell, you know, six expansion teams. Yeah, and and so starting the their the journey in '83 with 12 teams and expanding the next year with six more, um, yeah, and there were some moves, of course, of some of those first franchises. You mentioned Boston, which I think probably wins the award for um, uh, the USFL's most peripatetic franchise because they spent three years in the league, each in different cities: New Orleans and then Portland, uh, Oregon, of all places. Uh, in their in their journey, we can maybe talk about that, and obviously we'll go deeper into that one, hopefully with. Uh, a super fan of the breakers at some point, if we can find one. But, you know, look, we have the sort of the luxury of history, right, when we, we talk about this. But to your point, you're mentioning something that looks great on the outside and already is, um, frankly, exhibiting some behaviors on the inside that, in retrospect, would uh, certainly, uh, to the diligent uh, uh, manager, look as, uh, as as eyebrow-raising, right? But, you know, expanding right. to six new fran- uh, new teams, new franchises, and in, in in places that seem to be very similar to what you described before, a mix of major markets and, shall we say, underserved ones in Houston, Jacksonville, Florida, another sort of Birmingham-like market, at least until that point, you know, before the uh, uh, the Jaguars came into being in the NFL. Memphis, clearly, uh, Oklahoma, Pittsburgh, and, and San Antonio, another sort of historically underserved or underappreciated market. Um, yet, it seems that you have uh, more than a fair share of the original 12 teams already changing ownership. Um, That's right. By by mid-1984, half those teams did. Right. With with supposedly some very, very smart and intelligent businessmen. I mean, (laughs) at what point does the outside world, sports journalists or or fans or or even other, you know, folks related to the industry, start to sort of figure out that maybe there's some issues perhaps with this, despite the, you know, all appearances of being very successful, certainly as a television product, product. and uh, in many markets, quite quite strongly uh, attended and uh, supported uh, in the stands. And, you know, uh, though by all appearances to somebody who is keeping an open mind and who is actually cognizant of the fact that the USFL was not the NFL, uh, the 1983 season looked really good. To others, though, who were looking for the opportunity to criticize. And there certainly were a number of people, a number of sports writers who, for whatever reason, didn't like the league. They saw attendance of 25,000 as an absolute disaster. Hey, the NFL's drawn twice that. Yeah, the NFL is drawing twice that, but the USFL knew from day one that there's no way. They're playing in the spring. It's a new experiment. Uh, There's smaller markets. Uh, There's a lot of things working against you. And yet, some made the comparison. Uh, the the USFL's television ratings are a joke. You know, only the first year even compared to the NFL. Again, they're playing in the spring. This is a completely new product. ABC, the television, and ESPN, the television partners, never projected close to NFL numbers. The USFL exceeded those numbers, but that wasn't good enough for the critics. They weren't NFL numbers, therefore they were bad. So, you know, while you had what to uh, really an unbiased observer look like a very successful season. To those who were looking to find fault, they found plenty of it, and they went out of their way 
to make sure that people knew. So these ownership changes didn't go without notice. These people picked up on them and they, they criticized again incessantly. Uh, and, you know, it was th- that was the surest sign that there were things going on behind the scenes, that the USFL ownership was was shifting in that way. And some of that shift was natural. There were some bad geographic fits. Having an Oklahoma oil man uh, run your New York-based franchise was never ideal. Uh, selling off to a local was a much better proposition. And having a Phoenix-based heart surgeon, Dr. Ted Dietrich, own the Chicago franchise was never ideal, uh, especially when he had a, a different USFL franchise in his hometown where he was running his practice. So th- there were some of those things that were kind of auto-correcting in the second year. But, yeah, it, it was a little bit of a, a, a sign that things may not be as rosy as an unbiased observer might think. Yeah, but also, right, you had the founder, Dave Dixon, who, uh, by my research, uh, had uh, secured a, a an expansion franchise for himself, or at least a franchise, uh, in the beginning days of this, and I guess didn't uh, seek to exercise that, and what ultimately became the Houston Gamblers franchise. But it ultimately was not his franchise at the end of the day, because even he had grown uh, somewhat disenchanted, I guess, with the rapid uh, uh, expansion, I guess, of of spending, uh, perhaps uh, unchecked uh, by the owners. And, and, you know, if the founder of the whole damn thing in the first place uh, bolts and sells his his franchise before it even gets uh, the opportunity to be exercised, uh, you know, that doesn't sound, seem like a real strong ringing endorsement of the, of the whole enterprise, does it? And Dixon never had the cash to run a franchise anyway. So, a little bit of that, and that's exactly what he would. That's exactly what he told me is that, uh, you know, he became concerned, but he never really had the cash to run the franchise anyway. So from day one, that was his fee for kind of creating the league is that he got this automatic expansion franchise, uh, which of course is only good if you have a good 1983 season. And the USFL did, you know, in large part thanks to the foundations that he had set, but also an awful lot of hard work from an awful lot of people. So he really from day one was looking to sell this franchise and that's what he did. Uh, he sold to a guy named Dr. Jerry Argovitz, who was a, a pretty well-known player agent and who established a team called the Houston Gamblers. So I think it's really important to mention some of the, um, the new folks coming into the league uh, brought with them some, some interesting baggage and background as well. Uh, we mentioned Ed DeBartolo uh, earlier uh, with Pittsburgh, and he sort of caused some eyebrow raising because his father, right, was at that point the uh, the owner of the San Francisco 49ers of the NFL. So that certainly added another one. Yeah, his, yeah. His, his son was, yep, and he's the father. And, and really, it's the same money. It's Everybody knew it was the same money. It was the same organization. Just the son was the the titular head of the San Francisco 49ers, and now the father was going to be the owner of a USFL team, the Pittsburgh Maulers. Uh, so that uh, the, the NFL was up in arms about that, up in arms about potentially having a spy in their ownership group in Eddie DeBartolo Jr., who would go back and tell his father everything. And it, it really became a tense situation to where he was dismissed whenever they would discuss the USFL, where they forbade the move, uh, and it would all to no avail. 
and the you know one of these these uh, hallmarks of these pantheons of NFL ownership ended up buying a USFL team. What kind of message does that send about the the viability of the USFL at that point when an NFL ownership group is buying in? So that was that was a big one. So maybe this is a good good opportunity to sort of ask, uh, based on what you were able to reconstruct and, and, and maybe even remember when you were a fledgling fan of the, uh, of the Michigan Panthers franchise, what was the reaction of the NFL uh, to this? Uh, was it uh, deep concern or was it a little bit of sort of uh, not necessarily, uh, uh, you know, fearing it, it too much as a, as a competitor, given the fact that it was an off-season league and, and approach? I mean, maybe the dynamics between this this powerful new thing that came off uh, that on the radar screen in 1983 with the established NFL, were, were there concerns at, at corporate headquarters in, in, in the National Football League? The NFL's reaction to the USFL changed so much from the time that the USFL announced its formation, the NFL, you know, well, let's see, you know, let's see what happens to that 1983 draft when the USFL just wiped out uh, the first round of the NFL draft to assigning Herschel Walker, uh, the best college football player in America who would now not play in the NFL when he graduated from his senior class or when his senior class graduated to this moment where they felt like the USFL had swayed an NFL ownership group. So yeah, the NFL was absolutely up in arms. At this point, it went from uh, and Steve Steve described it as looking at this, uh, you know, kind of pathetic little creature. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, they're they're here to full scale warfare in the course of a year. The NFL was armed and ready. They were developing plans to deal with the USFL. Uh, they were not ignoring the USFL uh, by that point. Uh, really, uh, shortly after the USFL had been able to grab all those players in '83. The NFL knew that it had a real competitor on its hands. So this was, the NFL did their best to block this move, to keep the DeBartolos out of the USFL. And the DeBartolos were adamant, and you were not going to bully Eddie DeBartolo Sr. He's, uh, he was not a guy who you were going to be able to do that with. If it was legal, he was going to do it. And that's a, he ended up purchasing a USFL team. All right, well, let's talk about the other major franchise uh, shift uh, in that summer of, uh, of 1983. And, um, you know, it's obviously uh, can't be understated uh, the effect that uh, a one Donald Trump uh, ultimately had on this league. But in, in August of 83, uh, despite having signed Herschel Walker and uh, and giving it his best with the New Jersey Generals, Walter Dun- J. Walter Duncan sells to the brash real estate mogul from New York uh, and arguably the turning point of the USFL itself uh, in the process. Uh, any understanding as to uh, why and the motivations of, at least at that point, for Donald Trump to even be interested in the, in what ultimately he would call small potatoes in the 30 for 30 documentary? Why, how, et cetera, about Donald Trump in this league? Trump was a guy who was interested in the USFL, before it launched, he was involved in some of the uh, early meetings. He was targeted as their New York ownership. Uh, he ultimately decided not to invest at that time. And that's why Duncan, uh, who uh, had been looking at uh, Chicago instead, was shifted over to New Jersey to own that team. 
So really, the USFL looked at it as an ideal situation. You had this here young, energetic New Yorker, uh, local New York ownership that was going to own their marquee team, the New Jersey Generals. The USFL looked at that as a boon. Uh, Trump, meanwhile, saw that uh, there was potential here, potential for a, a bigger plan. Uh, potential because the USFL had pulled off its 1983 season. It had already kind of done, you know, the hard startup stuff. So now you could take over a going concern, add to it, and uh, execute your own plan. And, of course, you know, we know from looking back that his plan was to eventually force a merger with the NFL and to get his New Jersey Generals admitted as an NFL team that would uh, move to Shea Stadium first, in New York City and become the actual New York City team with both the Jets and the Giants playing in uh, in New Jersey. Uh, do you think, it's my understanding that uh, he was interested uh, prior to this as, as being an NFL owner as well and maybe had been rebuffed by the sort of old boys club. Uh, is that true? Do you think there was uh, a rebuff in some way uh, before he got involved with the USFL for him to actually get into the NFL? If I remember correctly, I looked at the Colts and maybe the Patriots and had been rebuffed. And there's a lot of guys who get rebuffed. So, yeah, number one, young. So uh, didn't necessarily fit in with the old guard of the NFL. But he wasn't that rich at the time. Uh, he wasn't nearly as rich as a guy like uh, Al Taubman, for instance. Uh, you know, the, he's still tied to his father. So there, there were probably a lot of things working against Trump. You know, guys look kick the tires. Uh, it's too expensive for some. NFL knows it's too expensive for others who don't realize it. And so, you know, he was rebuffed. Yeah. Well, that's interesting, too, because that that's also another sort of sub theme that's come up over the over the many months of our little show here. Um, you know, uh, the AFL, right, uh, probably doesn't exist without uh, Lamar Hunt being rebuffed by uh, his opportunity to try to get a franchise in the uh, in the NFL, you know, my uh, my love of the uh, the old New York Cosmos. Right. Uh, you know, you had um, uh, the founder and the uh, uh, the owner, uh, you know, of that basically being rebuffed, being uh, to get into the NFL club. And he decided that, you know, hey, maybe this soccer thing could be a way, um, you know, for him uh, to sort of make his mark in uh, in professional sports. And boy, did he on a, on, a, on a worldwide scale for at least a couple of years. So um, it's interesting how that sort of um, uh, not being invited to join the club dynamic uh, can actually fuel uh, passionately and maybe a little bit uh, uh, crazily uh, competitive juices to uh, either combat and then ultimately force some kind of uh, financial benefit down the road. And that underscores one of the reasons why these alternative leagues form is that there's an artificial shortage of these teams the the leagues such as the NFL say we're just not adding any teams even though there's demand even though you know we know that there are other markets who would like NFL teams we're not expanding anymore and they do that for a couple of reasons number one they divide the their TV contracts by the number of teams there are so the more teams there are the less each one gets uh, as a percentage from the TV contracts but also it drives up franchise values because you have more demand than you have supply constantly. So even if you're losing money on operations in the NFL, NFL teams haven't done that for a very long time. 
But even if you're losing money on operations, you're still increasing your asset value just because you control one of these precious NFL teams. You could, even if you're losing $7 million a year, if your franchise value increases by $10 million per year, you're holding on to that team as long as you can until you have to sell, even at losing $7 million a year, because at the end of the day, you're, you're really increasing the asset value by, by a net of $3 million. So, yeah, it's, it's one of the drivers of these leagues. One of the main business reasons is this artificial scarcity of professional teams that the, the leagues themselves impose. Well, but Trump, Trump wasted no time, right? I mean, you know, you had one league under, excuse me, one season of the league under your belt, relatively, certainly externally successful. Uh, some strengthening and some, and some um, you know, some, some winnowing of some of the weaker deadwood, so to speak, ownership-wise, right? But, you know, Trump's first owner's meeting, right, in October of 83, he already broaches the idea, not so subtly, that the idea of the USFL moving to the fall may be the better ultimate move where supposedly more fans and money reside, right? Because the NFL is there. And But, you know, come on, that's, you know, your first meeting. And then the second meeting uh, later in the January of 84, right, he literally calls for a vote for a move to the fall. I mean, uh, it may be one thing to actually have that as an idea, and you could make some arguments, I guess, economically, which he certainly did. I'm sure he was part of some of the, you know, some of the um, – a consultant work, you know, with Michael Porter from Harvard Business School and, and later the McKinsey Report and all that sort of uh, making cases for things like antitrust and all that stuff, right? So even if antitrust, right, which is the first sort of introduction of that topic, is on the table and is legally a viable thing to fight, right? But the idea of, you know, suge- suggesting uh, going after the NFL for anti-competitive reasons and potentially a fall season um, – you know, might be a noble and, and potentially very smart idea, but to do that after barely one year of of admitted okay success, I mean, I don't. It's hard for me, looking back on that, to see that dynamic as being healthy and even viable in the boardroom. And uh, you know, I should point out uh, one of the advantages that I had when writing this book is that it was written over a period of about ten years. So almost all of my Trump stuff predates his run for the White House. So if you have uh, presidential supporters or detractors, uh, you know, I stay out of those camps. Uh, I think you're right, though. You know, I, I don't think that a word, uh, the word "subtle," is one that's usually used to describe Donald Trump. And certainly it wasn't when he came in, he had a certain plan. He, he absolutely did. He was not a guy who was going to come in and kind of see how things went and see what the best way was. He came in with a plan. And that plan was to force a merger with the NFL. Uh, you know, he wanted his New Jersey generals, of course, to be a part of that. Uh, and, you know, I, I think people have made too much of maybe him leaving his partners behind. But the way that the ABA and WHA mergers worked out is that those who weren't merged in were paid off. So he definitely had a strategy in mind and he came in full bore with it. And from really that first owner's meeting on every interview he would give, he pushed for the fall. You know, his, his quote was, you know, if, God wanted football in the spring, he wouldn't have invented baseball, uh, which is 
not really all that clever for a quote, but it was what he said and uh, probably a little bit damaging to the USFL's efforts. But he had a plan, and uh, you know, and I, I think you you really did it. Uh, you you do the historical perspective a service the way that you stated it that you can review the economics and kind of get where he's coming from. Now the way he did it, uh, maybe most of us want to pursue that course. Well, let's let's uh, so this is crucial, and, and obviously this is not going to be a detailed history like the book uh, itself, however, is. And of course, we we urge you. Uh, listeners to uh, uh, run, not walk to your favorite uh, bookseller, whether it be online or otherwise, to get the United States Football League 1982 to 1986 uh, from uh, McFarlane, written by our, our guest here, Paul Reith, um, uh, to to get some of that depth. And, and obviously this is, as I said to you in our email correspondence by setting up this interview, I, I look at this as sort of a, uh, uh, as a foundational conversation in which we can go much more into various nooks and crannies and stories of teams and leagues and people and situations and stuff. But I, I think there's no doubt that any discussion of the league overall, and frankly, some of the teams specifically, uh, do revolve around this issue. So there is that financial argument. I get that. And 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 we can argue about the brusqueness or the uh, relative lack of tact, shall we say, in, in making, trying to achieve that. But there is this other issue, which is entwined, but also separate in its own in its own right, which is the idea of antitrust, Right which ultimately wound up becoming uh, a successful legal argument, albeit too late and you know not in time for uh, to solve the financial problems and ills of the league. But maybe a, a couple of seconds on this theory of antitrust uh, and the NFL, which, you know, again, is yet another theme in, in our conversations, right? When challenger leagues sort of come up, um, and the unique protection that may, most of the shall we say, major historical sports in this country have had protection from. Uh, and, you know, you make the question, the argument, it keeps coming back again and again, uh, the protection of such uh, when uh, restraint of trade, uh, you know, in other uh, industries um, seems to somehow have special treatment when it comes to pro sports. Yeah, and, uh, you know, the the only uh, sport that... that really can make a really great case for antitrust exemption is baseball. And even that, there's some question on if that was actually tested, whether it was whole, would hold up. It essentially holds up because uh, there's been no counter ruling to it. So uh, baseball is the one that has the actual antitrust exemption. And you had the NFL going around uh, in after the USFL folded that saying that, you know, without an antitrust exemption, there'll be no expansion. They They were blatantly publicly trying to strong arm Congress into an antitrust exemption, or they were going to withhold further expansion teams. It shows you the emphasis that they placed on it after this USFL trial, because it, it exposed a weakness. And that weakness is the, the NFL was accused of predatory practices of actively trying to stop the USFL from forming and succeeding, which is something the NFL always has done. The NFL did that to the American Football League. It went in and it stole the Minnesota Vikings ownership from the American Football League, forcing them to set up a team in Oakland at the last minute. The the NFL threw a team into Atlanta to block the American Football League. The NFL threw a team into Dallas to block the American Football League. The, The NFL has always done this. And whether or not they're found guilty of it, it, it's what the intent of their actions is. 
the where the USFL was not able to prove antitrust grounds was uh, pressure on the television networks, and, and that's where where really the crux of the matter was, and they weren't able to prove that the NFL had pressured the TV networks to not televise the USFL in the fall, and uh, that's why the the antitrust arguments uh, were successful in some degrees, but not in the area in which it really counted. Well, so um, uh, as we sort of uh, kind of get uh, sort of to the denouement here uh, of the league, um, you know, it, it it feels to me that these issues of financial opportunities and maybe a larger market uh, that could be shared with an NFL, you know, economically, right, is one set of issues. And the other is the actual legalities of antitrust, et cetera. And, you know, again, hindsight is 2020. Um, you wonder, you know, with a admittedly successful first year under its belt and a, a, a six new franchises and, and growth and an and interest in a spring league that didn't exist before, that had created a new market and was, you know, not completely unsuccessful in terms of, of creating a new product. Hell, one season, right? Let's put that in perspective, right? It's not 10 years, yeah. it's one. Um, right. You'd think that the idea of, Having a decent, protectable, and and good growing thing in the spring without any competition of its own, while pursuing that legal argument, right, would be more the sort of sane approach and and recognize more in a in a planned method, maybe over years, right, trying to figure out is there a way to directly compete and or but what if you're to win that legal argument, still being playing in the spring, you I mean you that that could open up a lot of financial and economic benefits, right. Even if you were still spring summer league, with the the added wind of of legal uh, 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 opportunity uh, behind your back, with uh, with a change in the rules. Sure. It, well, and there's there's two ways to win at this game. There is an antitrust judgment, but there is also putting the screws to the NFL so hard that the NFL knuckles under. The NFL, the AFL, for instance, didn't have to sue uh, to join the NFL. The NFL and the AFL sat down at the table after the AFL got its 1965 TV contract from NBC. The NFL knew it was not going away. It knew player costs were going to continue to rise exponentially. It knew it could not continue to compete with another league, and they sat down at the table and negotiated a merger. That's the other way you succeed. So by moving to the fall, by putting direct pressure on the NFL, you open up that other door. If you're playing in the spring, the NFL really, okay, let's see how this antitrust thing plays out. We're comfortable. We have very, very well-paid lawyers, probably better paid than yours. And so we'll take a shot at this. But if you can also apply that pressure, and you know, the NFL was much more vulnerable in that respect than it is today. You had ownership groups in New England and with the Sullivan family, in uh, Philadelphia that, that we're probably a little vulnerable, that it won't take, you know, too much of an increase in player salaries before these guys start breaking out in a little bit of a sweat. So Trump was also looking at that. What he didn't fully take into account was that his fellow USFL owners were going to begin sweating far before these NFL ownership groups were. And because they were smaller in number, they were far more vulnerable to it. To the, to the financial pressures that he was putting on by taking the league to the fall. There were some of them that were going to be able to, to ride that storm, but not enough of them. And so yeah. the, other, the other point is that 
while the perception we have here, again, is, you know, of this league, growing league, uh, 18 teams now in 1984, it didn't take long for you to really start to see the cracks develop publicly. The new Chicago Blitz owner, a guy named Dr. James Hoffman, uh, essentially abandoned the team before the season started. So you had no ownership group in the third largest market in the U.S. In the second largest market in Los Angeles, you had essentially a, a guy who had no money. Uh, a lot of things have been said about the guy, but he did not have a J. William Oldenburg. He, he, was, he did not have the money that he was spending, and he would be out of the picture before the end of the year. So you had two of your top three markets that were dying. And the other one was owned by Donald Trump. So he was going to have a very large voice because without those top three TV markets, you do not have a TV contract. And without a TV contract, again, you don't have a league. So tactically, you think he was he was uh, leveraging his uh, his outsized power given sort of those cracks. And, and that probably just enabled him right to 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 get to that sort of two thirds majority and make that vote happen. Right. But it doesn't it doesn't seem that. Uh, some of the other owners didn't go down without a fight, right? So uh, Jeff Perlman, uh, a writer in, in sports and, and, and whatnot, uh, apparently is working on a, a book himself uh, about the USFL and actually was uh, high in praise last year after being initially worried about your your book. He uh, loves your book, and I think it's actually going to be a very helpful component to his writing going forward, and I think it's going to come out sometime later this year. hope so. But he posted something, and, and this letter is out there on the web, and we'll certainly put it on our website as well. A, a stinging letter from John Bassett at the time, who, you know, was clearly, uh, you know, uh, started to suffer from uh, significant health problems that ultimately took his life uh, a few years later. But, um, you know, uh, a quick quote, right? I mean, this, this gives you a really good example, right? It's obvious from, and this is quoting John Bassett in this letter to Donald Trump on August 16th, 1984. It is obvious, obvious from the record that you are a talented and successful young man. It is also a fact that I regard you as a friend and an owner who's made a contribution to the league in general uh, and been a savior to the New York, New Jersey franchise in particular. While others may be able, however, to let your insensitive and de- denigrating comments pass, I no longer will. Uh-oh. You are bigger, younger, and stronger than I, which means I'll have no regrets whatsoever punching you right in the mouth the next time an instance occurs where you personally scorn me or anyone else who does not happen to salute and dance to your tune. And and, and it goes on from there. Um, it's clear that Bassett uh, and others weren't necessarily enamored with, uh, with Trump, despite some of the uh, flagging ownership in, in other places. But, you know, despite such... Uh, verve uh, from from frankly influential owners like Bassett. Um, how does the rest of the league, if you will, uh, I don't know, kowtow or, or bend backwards uh, to kind of allow Trump-led uh, forces to kind of you know strong-arm people into this move to uh, into the fall? Um, in your mind, I think the short answer is that they were losing a lot more money than they projected and saw no way out. So you have Donald Trump who has a plan. Uh, Whether you agree with that plan or not, he has a plan that has some historical uh, and economic merit to it. Uh, Despite, you know, a a surly personality and yeah, you know, he pushes, and he, you know, pushed the, the first commissioner, Chet Simmons, around as much as possible. 
bullies. He stuck his nose in where it didn't belong, tried to directly insert himself into television negotiations when he did not have any league approval to do so. In fact, had been told by the league not to do so. Uh, he, he did whatever he could. He just continues to push and push and push. Uh, and, you know, a guy like Bassett, who bought fully into the USFL plan, who was operating in an NFL market and succeeding. The Tampa Bay Bandits were this incredibly well-marketed machine that was succeeding in an NFL market, and the Buccaneers needed no help at that time to look bad. They did that all by themselves. But the Bandits made them look even worse because they were a fun team. They were exciting. They were well-marketed. And Bassett ran just such an ideal program. He saw this possibility. He captured this lightning in a bottle, and he saw the possibilities of the USFL. Now, whether every team in the USFL or even most of them could do that, that's open for some debate. Uh, but he was no fan of moving to the fall. And you know, in truth, you know, I think he's a he's one of these good guys. He's a guy who. You, have, it has, you just can't paint him in a bad light in relation to the USFL because he bought completely into the concept. He was a big supporter. You know, he was there to, uh, I think he saw part of his role as assisting the commissioner. And, you know, they saw the commissioner being bullied uh, by Trump. And so he, he inserted himself into that conversation. Uh, unfortunately, you know, uh, he did become sick, as you mentioned. Uh, he had developed a couple of brain tumors, and um, that cancer eventually took his life. So he was not around to to continue to to fight it. And you know, he was pretty weak, I think, when the vote for the fall was taken. Yeah, and that 1985 season, obviously playing out still, you know, with television and all that stuff. But it's clear that you know, and and, and uh, John Bassett uh, was on uh, on national TV uh, in an interview uh, uh, talking about what uh, maybe was maybe now an open secret, where you had uh, differing opinions in the USFL and uh, and arguably uh, devolving into charges of and maybe even accurately so mismanagement. Um, I think it's also important to recognize that this by this third season you had. Uh, as you were saying, uh, the teams that were uh, sort of floundering, but also merging to kind of sort of succeed and stay, stick around, right? You had to, uh, right. teams, you know, kind of kind of putting putting pieces together to kind of keep propping it up. So it seems to me, though, that then because of the dynamics already in play, that in essence, whatever could have been an economically viable plan by itself, divorced from the legal challenges, became inseparable from those legal challenges, almost to the point where, actually to the point where, the whole future of the whole damn thing relied upon a successful verdict uh, in this antitrust case that finally came about uh, and was heard in uh, in the summer of 1986. Correct. And and you look at the the quandary that the USFL was in by that point, where you were missing ownership in Chicago and Los Angeles, and those franchises had really they they really looked bad because they hadn't been able to draw anybody, they hadn't stuck any money into marketing. Uh, Los Angeles had done everything in its power, despite the fact that you know the ownership really shouldn't have been even been there uh, to draw fans. Uh, Steve Young, they get this, the, who was going to be the number one draft pick in the NFL. They bring him in, and it results in a dull thud. Uh, I believe they said that the number of season tickets that they sold after the Young signing 
was about 100. So whereas Herschel Walker brings in 10,000 when he signs. So you had this Los Angeles that was just completely indifferent, the second largest market, no ownership for Chicago. Um, they had struck out twice and couldn't find a, a third owner who wanted to play in the spring. So you had these cracks that were also developing. And you're right, at, at that point, you have other ownership looking at this, looking at their own red ink, looking at how much money they had, more money they had lost than they had projected. And seeing that, you know, right now there is no way we will make this back. ABC and ESPN, which by that point had combined, came back with a, a significantly redu uh, increased, excuse me, television offer, which would still not have been nearly enough to offset losses. And that was, that was the best deal that they could get. They couldn't get interest from uh, any of the uh, other major networks. Uh, Fox was still not there. So they went with their next best option, you know, which was to, to try to force the NFL's hand to put the pressure on the NFL for a merger and, and, and to sue hoping that one of those two eventualities would, would create a merger. So I think it's also interesting, too. So that that, that case was uh, was heard in May of 86, and, and uh, the the, uh, the jury came back in July of 86 in a second. And we're rounding the end of our of our uh, our, our discussion here. But I I, I do want to talk, uh, talk about the actual state of the product, right, in, in the spring of 1986, because it was envisioned, um, I guess there was debate on whether to play a spring season uh, before moving into the fall. Um, but, you know, you'd already seen a, a reduction in teams from from 14 in 1985 to, to about eight, and there was some more merging and folding and, and all that kind of stuff. But I wonder uh, if the, um, and obviously a 1986 season in the spring never happened, but um, I wonder the inability for the league to, um, you know, either put a spring product out or have a cohesive uh, discussion about, you know, to the public as to why they needed to wait until they got their act together for the fall. Um, it would almost seem like in some respects, at least public relations wise, it was kind of shooting itself in the foot uh, by not somehow continuing to play or at least give off the appearance that franchises were stable in place and preparing to do so. I wonder if that had any effect in uh, I don't know, people's uh, uh, backbone uh, around this idea that this case was actually going to be uh, not only worth pursuing, but uh, ultimately successful, albeit in a Pyrrhic way. Right, right. And, you know, uh, I think that by the end of that 1985 season, you had a lot more ownership groups uh, that were in trouble. Uh, you had uh, Denver, which was formerly a league stalwart, uh, which was just you saw attendance tumble and they were on their way out of town. You saw uh, the Oakland was by taken over by Al Taubman from Michigan and basically doing them a favor almost just to keep his uh, foot in the waters. You had the Houston gamblers ownership that was failing uh, the Phoenix uh, ownership uh, after 1984 had failed and had to bring in the Oklahoma ownership to take it over. Uh, Portland was done. San Antonio was done. There was no owner yet in Los Angeles. Um, Jacksonville needed some help. They were trying to sell some stock, and in, in fact, then eventually brought in the Denver owner. Tampa Bay, with the, the 
passing of John Bassett uh, brought in somebody new. Lots of questions on if he could even uh, pay for things. Uh, Birmingham, uh, their owner was gone. Uh, they had brought in a new guy. Again, questions on could he do this? They, so, you know, you saw a further whittling of ownership. And so spring or fall, by the end of that 1985 season, uh, the USFL was hemorrhaging cash with no real hint, no real possibility uh, of seeing any of it back in the near future and just more red ink on the way. It sounds like that sent mixed signals to the, to the public, right? Because the the plan was to play in the fall of 86, regardless, right? And the, and the, the, the case was still dragging out and was not you know, even close to being decided until the summer, right? I, I guess my question to you would be, based on your, your knowledge and your interviews and your conversations, how realistic was that fall 1986 season in the first place uh, until they announced in August of 86, August 1st, uh, and this was after, I guess, the court case had been initially decided, um, that they were not officially going to play in the fall of 86? The 1986 season, uh, whether the owners knew it or not, was always contingent upon a successful jury verdict because Donald Trump was not going to play in 1986 uh, unless they won that trial. And without a New York franchise, they had no L.A., they had no Chicago. Without New York, they don't have an ESPN contract, which was their only television contract going into that season. In addition, uh, Baltimore had been bought by a guy named Stephen Ross, who now owns the Miami Dolphins. And he also, I believe, had no intention of playing unless there was a successful jury verdict. So I, I just don't see a way that the USFL would have gone on one more year. Now, I'd, I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that Part of the reason for so much red ink was uh, the spending that was in part accelerated by Donald Trump. Uh, he came in when he bought the New Jersey Generals. He signed all kinds of NFL guys, greatly increased the play, payroll of the New Jersey Generals, but also increased the pressure on his fellow owners to sign those kinds of players. So, you know, part of the reason for barrels of red ink at that point was, you know, that Donald Trump had helped to accelerate uh, player signings. I think sometimes his his role in doing so is a little bit overstated because that process had already begun the year before, before he ever signed on. When the Michigan Panthers basically raided the Pittsburgh Steelers offensive line on their way to a championship, when George Allen was out there signing everybody, when the general signed Herschel Walker, when you had the wild card exemptions, that process was already underway. But Trump accelerated it. And so by the end of the 1986 season, you, you had simply not enough guys who were able to go on. And the jury verdict then, uh, the jury verdict, uh, when it did not produce a sizable financial award, uh, was the nail in the coffin. All right. So two things there quickly. One, uh, in retrospect, uh, or maybe I don't know if this is true or not, was there... So I know like at the end of the uh, the uh, 85 championship game, and, and we'll probably have a clip to that on our website when we post this episode in the next week or so, um, you know, there was allusion to, hey, you know, you guys have now a, an 18 month uh, a break, right? Because it was already announced that they were going to move to the fall. Was there any, right. I think, was there any serious consideration of having a spring season in 86 and then potentially doing a, a 86 in the fall as well? Or was it was that idea never really realistic, right? I mean, at least to keep some kind of momentum going without that gap. Yeah, I don't 
I don't think that there was uh, any real discussion about that just because of the nature of football, that it would have been hard to essentially stage two seasons in one calendar year. What the USFL did to really show the public that they were continuing operations was they, each team signed a core of players that they ha- still had. I know that there were a few mini camps that were held in 1986, that late summer uh, and early fall period, excuse me, late summer it would have been, uh, Jim Kelly appears on the cover of Sports Illustrated in a New Jersey Generals uniform from one of those mini camps. Uh, the Outlaws did too, I believe the Renegades. So there, there were a few things, but everybody was just waiting for that jury verdict to come in because that was that was what the entire season was hinging on. All right, and let's let's cap this then with that jury verdict. So um, for those who are you young whippersnappers out there who were not around and or don't sort of know the story, um, you want to sort of tell our audience sort of how the USFL won the case but lost the battle, so to speak? <laughs> the USFL uh, sued the NFL on antitrust grounds, saying that it had uh, purposefully monopolized professional football, used predatory tactics against the USFL, and in particular, the most vital claim was that the NFL had put pressure on the television networks to not televise the USFL in the fall and to suppress television income in general. The USFL hired a guy named Harvey Meyerson to make this case, and uh, by most accounts, he was in over his head. He resorted to theatrics um, when you know he may have been able to build an economic case for the jury, but most people felt that the jury was kind of lost by the theatrics and that he alienated him a little himself a little bit by a very cool uh, NFL attorney named Frank Rothman, who was able to paint Meyerson and, and some of the witnesses, including Howard Cosell, in a bad light. So at the end of the day, instead of being awarded what would have amounted to over a billion dollars in damages because antitrust uh, cases automatically carry treble damages. They, they they triple whatever the award is. Instead of being awarded over $1.2 billion in damages, the, the jury came back finding the NFL guilty of uh, creating a monopoly, but awarded the USFL just $1. Uh, and there was, a, you know, different accounts from the jurors. Some were obviously confused um, by the number of instructions, by the number of things they had to look at, by the economic arguments. They thought that the the verdict could be adjusted. Others claimed that there was no confusion. It was a, a, a very divided jury. It sounded like a, a very tough time where people were fainting and screaming at each other. And uh, at the end of the day, the USFL was awarded $1, which was eventually tripled with interest. And, uh, a three dollar and I believe seventy six cent check is what the NFL eventually ended up mailing in um, for its part. In addition to several million dollars in attorney fees for the USFL as the prevailing party. So but I, I guess what I don't understand, and, and clearly this will be fodder for another conversation, uh, perhaps with a, a legal expert and, and maybe some uh, somebody perhaps in the the courtroom or in that process during that time, but. Um, you know, I, I, what I'm trying to figure out, and I still don't know, and I, I need to go deeper into why, um, why the variability between such a, a large amount of money expected uh, having won the case and 
uh, it basically being essentially vacated, at least financially. Um, you know, mm -hmm. where does the discretion for adjusting the amount of damages awarded come from? I mean, uh, is that the court? Is that the judge? Is that the jury? Um, it seems confusing to an, to an outsider like me as to why you would win on the merits of the case, but you would um, not get recompensed in any uh, uh, substantial way, right? It almost seems like, yeah, and it was the yeah, you're right, but sorry, you're not right. Yeah, it, it was uh, the jury in both cases. The jury um, uh, made the guilty verdict, and they also came up with the damage award. Um, some of the jurors thought that the judge would adjust it, and that is not the case. Um, so yeah, there there was you know uh, some confusion there. Uh, you know, it, when I look back on this judgment, I have a hard time n not looking at it as the jury blaming the victim. Okay, the NFL is guilty of monopolization, but you also did all this stuff to to do this. Okay, well. Is the USFL on trial here, or is it the NFL? Because you just said that the NFL was guilty, but your whole judgment is based on the but. Yes, uh, uh, the USFL did things wrong. Uh, former Arizona and, and Oklahoma Outlaws owner Billy Tatham says, yeah, you know, people are looking at us running around this burning house like madmen, but they're just ignoring the fact that the NFL's tossing the matches in. Yeah, we made mistakes, but the NFL set in the fire. So uh, I do have a hard time to this day with that jury verdict. That if you're going to find that the NFL didn't monopolize professional football and the USFL's awarded to nothing, that's one thing. If you're going to find that the NFL did monopolize and, and, and broke the antitrust laws, then you need to award something uh, that's at least a slap on the wrist, and a dollar is not. And oddly, the appeal, right, was not about the, the verdict itself, but the amount of money that should have been awarded, supposedly, uh, and even that appeal was upheld. Yeah, and even the appeal goes through the litany of mistakes that the USFL made. It's just the USFL itself is on trial and was all, the whole time. And the, the NFL and their... Uh, from the start, the judge did not allow uh, testimony about the NFL's other antitrust cases. It did not allow uh, evidence about the NFL's uh, other anti-competitive uh, motions, such as all that it did to undermine the AFL. Uh, it didn't allow some of the stadium uh, discussions where the NFL actively tried to keep the USFL out of NFL stadiums when the USFL was launching. There was clear evidence of that. So it seemed like kind of a, you know, to me, uh, a stack deck against the USFL where rather than the NFL being at trial, it was as if the USFL was supposed to have behaved absolutely perfectly or the NFL was kind of guiltless no matter what they did. Yeah, it almost feels like that. that the the uh, the uh, the denigration of the award almost feels like it was a um, almost a, uh, a signal that um, you know really what are the damages, right? How much have you you know uh, how much injury has really taken place? Yeah, you're right on the merits, but um, you know uh, you guys are all sort of rich and and in trying to you know create a, an enterprise for yourself. Uh, did you really suffer too much in damage that you didn't self inflict? And when they bring a guy like Donald Trump up to the stand. You can see a jury looking at him and saying, 
boy, you just don't really look like a guy who's really hurting all that bad. And, you know, it was Trump's handpicked guy, Meyerson, who led this trial. And I, I think that there are a lot of guys uh, that they could have brought up there who had lost their shirts, uh, who would have presented much better to the jury. As having been financially injured and and could have. Right. That That's right. That seems like it'd be a more palatable strategy in front of a jury. Right, right. Instead of the, you know, here's our here's our New York owner who, boy, he really looks like he's going to do okay. <laughs> uh, this guy's got money to survive this thing, rather than, you know, the ownership in Arizona who had, you know, suffered real loss, or some of these other guys who were on their last penny. Uh, that that was a tremendous mistake, uh, I think. You know, now whether or not that would have swayed the jury, that's really all conjecture. Uh, I don't think that it was good strategy. And I also don't think that the USFL presented the economic arguments all that well, that Meyerson went into all these weird projections rather than just sticking with what we lost and, and how it was done. And, you know, I, I think that he did a tremendous injustice to the USFL's case, yet somehow got a guilty verdict, yet somehow only got a dollar. Yeah, I'd, I'd love to do a separate episode at some point. Maybe you've got some pointers as to who about sort of the um, maybe sort of the specific legal uh, drama uh, in both of those cases and, and uh, the twists and turns and maybe the mistakes uh, made in in that process. Because I think, you know, that one that hasn't really been sort of uh, deeply uh, uh, dived into uh, and two, you know, um, you know, you can sort of play a little bit of what if history here. Right. So what if things had changed? What have you know, what if uh, substantial damages were awarded and trebled? Uh, what if there was a competitive league in the fall? So let me lead to so two, two last quick questions. And I appreciate uh, your time. And I'm sure our audience has uh, more than appreciated uh, this uh, uh, walk down uh, the tortuous road of the of the USFL um, and perhaps hopefully more to come uh, in our conversations. Um, but number one is, um, you know, at the end of all of this, um, so the, the the case has been made and and the the, the legal uh, uh, machinery agrees that there was anti-competitive. Why has nobody else taken advantage of that since? Right. And the NFL is arguably more popular than ever. But, you know, maybe some chinks in the armor starting to show. Um, we can debate that separately. But, um, you know, you think that, OK. The USFL didn't sort of, uh, you know, it's clear that the league has been uh, wounded at this point, right? Not not to some you know, right. financial extent. Um, it would seem to me that there would be another opportunity or opportunities uh, to kind of take advantage of this uh, this decision and, and maybe either make a true full go at it, either competitively uh, in a fall kind of way, or frankly, start up another f- spring league, right, where, you know, to the USFL's credit, uh, they created and, and tapped into an appetite for the sport uh, in the quote unquote off season. Sure. And let me make the, let me make the argument that maybe no matter what the USFL did, it was doomed from the start uh, because by the early eighties, about half the NFL's total revenue was coming from television. The other half coming from everything else. So USFL in-stadium attendance projected at about half of what the NFL was doing. So at best, on that side of the ledger, on half of your uh, revenue, you're doing half of what the NFL does. On the television side, 
the NFL is earning 15 times as much as you are. There is no way you are competing with the NFL for any length of time. What the USFL did for three seasons was almost miraculous in being able to hold out that long because the economics, the base economics on a revenue basis was so far against them that they shouldn't have been able to make the impact that they did. They were, they were, the NFL was able to outspend the USFL by wide margins at every turn. And yet the USFL was like these guerrilla warriors that got in for this three season period and shook things up and really to the betterment of players. Uh, But when you look at its long-term possibilities, that television revenue was going to be really this this kind of damning uh, piece against them. They were that they weren't going to be able to overcome. the The NFL had so much more revenue potential with television than the USFL did. All right, and the capstone question, of course, is what do you think the legacy is of all this, and do you think uh, there is a time when the NFL, given its superior legacy economics and and bulwark status and 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 leverage in this uh in this the football industry in this country um do you think that uh there is a a, a, another challenger league or some other evolution that uh either takes advantage of the uh legally uh you know uh, questionable uh antitrust uh state that uh, the nfl operates in I think if you go into it looking at antitrust as your as your strategy uh, to succeed, you're 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 in real trouble. What you what you need to start off with is a viable business plan, and then antitrust issues to to raise them. But the viable business plan is where there's the problem. Again, the the economics, as bad as they were in the 1980s against any challenger league, are even worse now. The NFL is earning and unsightly amount from television to where there's no way for a competitive league to get that. If there's a league that's vulnerable, uh, it's probably the NHL, uh, a major league that's vulnerable, but even then it's just tough. You're, you're scaling against so many factors, including the fact that the current leagues all have the best facilities all have history, all have fan bases, all have the best players. They have a significant first mover advantages, but they also have all the best TV contracts. And that's what's propping them all up. So unless uh, the television networks all at once get tired of somebody and say, yeah, we're going to give the the money to a, a challenger, I don't see what the viable business plan would be. Uh, the the television money has just made the walls so much higher, which is why we have not seen any challenging leagues emerge in the last 35 years. Leagues that competed with the established major leagues for players. The XFL did not do that. The UFL did not do that. We've seen nothing in any of the other sports. And, you and think- before that, you had had a period of the ABA and the WHA and the AFL and the WFL and 
it finished off. That era was really finished off by the United States Football League. Yeah, it's interesting, too. You think that um, that spring and football could absolutely still go together in some professional manner, right? Given lots of television economics that's sort of out there and cable is flourishing and, 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 and nourishing, but... Um, uh, no doubt directly competitive, certainly not, uh, and those other economic uh, uh, issues that, uh, that that dominate pro sports generally. But um, you still wonder, there's an appetite, right? I, the one thing that the USFL also did, right, was prove that there was an appetite for football. And we talked a bit about this with uh, with our previous guest, Jim Foster, the uh, founder of the Arena Football League, right, where, you know, they, they were never going to play in the against the NFL uh, on a schedule-wise, right? And they were also a completely differentiated and different product. Um, right. You know, it, it it still feels to me, to, even to this day, that, you know, some uh, logical and uh, a not too crazy uh, professional uh, approach to some type of spring type football that may be now not as easily done now, given the, the growth of soccer and the resurgence of baseball. Um, but, you know, it seems to me that there's always an appetite for football in this country and uh, it seems to always will be. Um, you wonder why uh, a, 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 a spring product of some stability and significance uh would not be attempted again and maybe you're you're arguing why economically it's just it's just a, a even even in the quote-unquote offseason of the nfl it's just too hard to mount a challenge well and the, you know your best case scenario would be to get a couple of corporate giants together and form a league that already had uh television inroads in the spring and see what happened and uh that's what happened you know with vince mcmahon and nbc is they did exactly that. Uh, now, some of the theatrics I can understand turn people off, but you know they did a reasonably good job of drawing attention, especially initially. They did a reasonably good job of getting people into the stadiums, and they still lost a ton of money. And they NBC backed out. They they no longer saw any television potential, and they backed out, causing the whole thing to collapse. Now, you know, we've recently in the last uh, few weeks heard that uh, Mr. McMahon might be exploring this possibility again. So maybe he has some other ideas. Uh, you know, certainly the entire uh, television industry is so much more splintered than it was in the 80s. Uh, the NFL has been up to this point, you know, one of these rare properties that has been able to maintain, you know, some some real uh, ratings, uh, some really great ratings. And now, especially over the last two seasons, we've seen maybe a little bit of that erosion. Maybe it's just catching up with the NFL. Maybe it's some of these other peripheral issues, too, that are affecting. Um, but it's going to, I think, take some kind of change uh, on that side of the equation, on the television revenue side of the equation, before anybody would have a shot in in. Professional football is just ridiculously expensive to run, uh, even on a kind of a minor league basis, on an XFL, NFL Europe type of salary basis, or even less. It's still very expensive to do it. Yeah, it's, a, it's interesting, too. I think sort of the NFL has some existential challenges ahead of it as well. Uh, stadium and, and uh, locales and, and how those stadiums get funded certainly uh, the the growing problem of CTE and and uh, the relative health and and long term uh, physical stability of of players both current and pa and uh, former 
Um, so I, you know, and how it's propping up the broadcast television industry, which itself is going through fits and changes. Um, I don't know. It's it's very interesting. I would keep an eye indeed on Vince McMahon. Uh, I can't imagine he's the only other one sort of seeing relative weak links in the previously invincible National Football League. Stay tuned, I would say, right? I think football is going to go through some interesting uh, changes and, and perhaps maybe even in a, you know, I, I don't know if we'll ever go back to the wild and wooly days of the USFL or the WFL and, and those sort of challenger leagues from the, you know, the heyday of the 70s and early 80s. But um, it's certainly a space. To All right. So let's uh, let's end this with uh, some promotional stuff. So tell us uh, again, remind us the name of the book, uh, what you're doing to promote it. Um, other things going on that you'd like to call attention to um, just general promotional time. Here's your chance. <laughs> the, the book is called the United States Football League, 1982 to 1986. And you can, the easiest way to order it is right on Amazon. Uh, you can also go to McFarland.com. Uh, both have it for the same price. Amazon, it's prime, so you can get it within two days. Uh, you know, I, it, I really hope that those who remember the league, remember it fondly, look at it as uh, a little bit of a definitive history uh, it is chock full of interviews. I was able to talk with David Dixon, uh, several owners. Uh, Steve Earhart was a tremendous help. Chet Simmons, the first commissioner, uh, coaches, players. So I wanted to give them all a voice. Uh, lots of never-before-heard stories in the book. If you were at all interested in the USFL, if you were at all interested in pro football, particularly in the 1980s, but also just the economics um, I think it's uh, it shows the USFL as a, as a business entity, but also as uh, you know, kind of looks at what happened on the field. So, however you remember the USFL, I think that it has some stuff in there for you. Uh, it was a lot of fun to write, uh, so I'd love you know for you to purchase it and, and give me some feedback. Uh, the other thing that I'm working on right now is a statistical site called statscrew.com, S-T-A-T-S, crew.com. And that has statistics for all these alternative leagues, including the USFL, the WFL, XFL, NFL Europe, in addition to the NFL, the CFL, and really branching through all sports. We have uh, historic indoor soccer. We have today's MLS. We have uh, the NBA and ABA, WHA, NHL, and just a ton of others. So it's it's meant to be a one-stop shopping uh, for not only the statistics of these teams, but using those statistics to tell the team's stories. And, and really, I think when you get to some of these alternative leagues like the USFL, some of those stories are, are among sports most interesting. Well, I appreciate, I mean, so you've set me up perfectly, right? So that's exactly why we do this uh, show, although I, I wonder sometimes why I do it. It's 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 exactly that. One, tapping into other people's uh, remembrances and passions, such as yours uh, in this conversation, for which we thank you. Uh, but then secondly is also, uh, you know, uh, going back into some of those things and, and opening up those uh, – uh, those old boxes that were, were long, long ago put in the corner and gathering dust that uh, indeed have a wealth of uh, interesting stories, twists and turns. I mean, and, and you have to look no further than our, you know, our current president, right? Uh, regardless of how much you agree or disagree with his uh, whatever he's trying to do with the with the president, right? Is you know, it, a, it brings the USFL back and and look, those who ignore history are only doomed to repeat it, right? And whoever said that don't know, but. 
you know, all you get, you can see the USFL and Donald Trump as a microcosm, perhaps, of what's going on today. And, um, you know, these are stories that continue to, to have uh, life, uh, renewed, in, uh, renewed life, uh, and, uh, and the patterns that uh, we've seen so far and we will see still further um, do indeed repeat themselves. And, and there's some amazing uh, 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 and interesting stories that come out of all this. And, and we appreciate you uh, doing what you've done for the USFL book. Uh, the stats uh, site indeed is also very compelling. And uh, I look forward to hopefully staying in touch and, and stumbling across some other areas, either of USFL or other stuff in the world of forgotten sports teams and leagues uh, to discuss with our audience. I, you know, really appreciate you doing the show. Uh, you know, these kind of forgotten teams and leagues have always been a passion. The USFL, of course, is is kind of my number one one. But when USA Today would come out in the 80s, I'd be the guy who's looking through the agate and trying to find what is this major league, you know, whatever, you know, what is this uh, national lacrosse league or major indoor lacrosse? And uh, what are all these minor league baseball outfits and the indoor soccer and, you know, all these leagues that, you know, are, are outside the big four, but providing entertainment. And, you know, I think especially today, it's so easy to get caught up in the cult of personality that is sports and forget that it's a, kind of about the entertainment and that whether that entertainment occurs on an AstroTurf soccer field or in an alternative professional football league, it's still entertainment and it's memory building. And there's a part of what sports should be in these leagues where it's not all do or die. It's fun. You go out and root for your team. Uh, they become a part of you and a part of your memories. Uh, but at its core, it's entertaining. And that's, uh, that's what I love about these, these teams and these leagues. All right. Interesting stuff. As always, uh, I always learn something uh, and, and more than a few things in this conversation. Uh, with uh, with Paul Reese. Thank you uh, so much for, for joining us, Paul. Uh, and uh, let's see, the book uh, that we uh, talk about that uh, you should buy, you should own, and you should devour, as I have, uh, written by Paul Reese, is called The United States Football League, uh, 1982 to 1986. It is uh, published by our friends at McFarland. You will find a link uh, to that book uh, in also in Kindle form as well, if you don't want to uh, fork up uh, the big bucks for the paperback uh, edition. You will find a link to the, all of that stuff uh, on uh, our website at goodseatstillavailable.com. Just search for the episode number 46 uh, and you will uh, find a link to that. You will also find a link uh, to uh, another book that we referred to uh, during our conversation uh, that was written by the late uh, Jim Byrne, he the former director of communications for the USFL. That book is out of print but it is available. It's called The One Dollar League, The Rise and Fall of the USFL, of course, uh, by Jim Byrne. Uh, you will find a link to that on our website. In addition, we'll also put a link to uh, the documentary that uh, if you haven't seen that, that'll also sort of help frame uh, our current and future USFL conversations. Uh, that was the uh, Mike Tollins directed uh, film for ESPN 30 for 30. I think it was from the first season. If I'm not mistaken, I could be wrong there, but it's called Small Potatoes, Who Killed the USFL? And yes, 
a spoiler alert, you will see uh, uh, an appearance by uh, Mr. Trump in his pre-presidential days. And uh, you can judge for yourself as to what kind of role he played in the ultimate demise of the United States Football League. Uh, all good stuff. Again, good seats still available.com. That's where you'll find all the old episodes. And by the way, while you're there, uh, make sure that you uh, go back and uh, download and listen to uh, our episode number 11, if you haven't already. Uh, that was our real first foray into the USFL with uh, longtime Philadelphia slash Baltimore Stars USFL publicist Bob Moore uh, with some really crazy stories about uh, the life and times of the Stars franchise, probably arguably uh, the most successful uh, and stable franchise, uh, despite them being in two cities uh, in the league's uh, short three-year history. So all that stuff, you can't say that we're not thinking about the USFL, and it's all there for you, and plenty, plenty more to come uh, in future episodes. So please keep, uh, as they say, your cards and letters coming. We'd love to hear them. Uh, let's see. We want to thank our friends at Podfly. Thank you, Podfly Productions, uh, Eric Begay and uh, Corey Coates and David Gregerson, and of course, the inimitable Jerry Payne, who puts up with my nonsense every single week uh, with all the various recordings and stuff, and he makes it come out sounding smooth, sounding nice. Uh, and I guarantee you it is not nearly as nice when it goes in, but when it comes out, it is uh, absolutely fine. And we appreciate uh, Jerry Payne and the uh, friends there at Podfly Productions. If you want the, uh, the same treatment, if not better, by all means, go to podfly.net. Tell them that Tim Hanlon and or Good Seats Still Available uh, sent you. And they will be more than happy to help you with uh, your podcasting uh, needs, whether they be novice, beginner, or advanced. Uh, tremendous folks down uh, at Podfly Productions. Uh, last thing, uh, please follow us on social media. We love your uh, your tweets and your comments. Uh, on Twitter, you'll find us at Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you'll find a Facebook page uh, devoted to us as well. Give us a like or some love there. And uh, of course, if you want to send us some email and all that stuff, just go to our website. Again, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. All right, that's enough for me, don't you think? Sure. All right, we'll see you next week. More fun and frivolity to come. Take care, everybody. Thanks for listening.